Today we continue a series in the Gospel of John. When's the last time you let yourself be in a really gritty and real situation with people? I mean, everything about us tries to avoid those awkward, uncomfortable places. Today we'll see Jesus in one. It seems like God has been working on me over the years. Um, It's a practice in vulnerability, a practice in trust in God, a practice in seeing humanity uh, in the way God does. Uh, But every few years, God seems to bring into my life um, another homeless person, another person uh, struggling to find security, often struggling with addiction, um, and, and every couple years, the Spirit makes very clear that I'm to engage. And sometimes uh, I'm engaged for weeks and sometimes for months. In most cases, eventually, there's just no more contact. And uh, this person that I've been walking with uh, has moved on and vanished, and I never hear back again. There was one time um, this guy uh, came along, and, and I got to baptize him a week later. He, he came for that. Like, he's like, I need God. And so I got to baptize him, and he disappeared a few weeks later. And like a year and a half later, he showed up. And he said, oh, yeah, I've been doing ministry down in California for the last year and a half. And I was like, Wow. Praise God. But in most cases, no. In most cases, someone just vanishes. I remember this time, it was probably about six years ago, um, God brought into our lives this this uh, lady by the name of, well, we'll call her Crystal. And uh, Crystal came into our lives, and uh, man, what a what a hurting, broken story. I mean, the things she'd experienced in life, the, the pain and the struggles she had been to. And so it started with trips to Winco. And I, I remember... Uh, helping her get groceries, uh, get some food for the next few days, and walking through Winco, and you could feel the eyes of people on us. And, and God, God was just revealing to me, this is your opportunity to just, for a half hour of her life, absorb some of those looks uh, that she experiences on a continual basis. A few weeks later, uh, with Sarah and our girls, uh, we went to the day shelter and we brought her cake on her birthday and, and everyone there and just surrounded by addiction and filth, we sat and we ate birthday cake and we celebrated with our friend Crystal. When's the last time you've been drawn into one of these really gritty and real places? Right now in the Gospel of John, we're going to be in the fourth chapter today, and John has laid out in the very beginning, uh, John is one of the apostles, one of the closest followers of Jesus, and he's written this story, he's very explicit, I think it's in chapter 20, he says, I've written this so that you might believe in Jesus and find life. He's writing with the purpose that we might come to believe in Jesus. And in the first chapter of his gospel, he's laid out all these names of Jesus. He's laid out the the belief, his understanding. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is our hope. And then he goes on to tell all these stories, signs that Jesus performed that demonstrate for us who Jesus is, again, that we might come to believe in him. And today in the fourth chapter, we find Jesus uh, Kind of in the middle. Some believe and many do not. For instance, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the age, of, of the age um, are, are at this point considering having Jesus killed. Eventually they'll accomplish that purpose. Uh, so our, our text begins in John chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, it's a long reading, but I'm going to do the full reading because John is a masterful storyteller, and uh, I don't want to get in the way of anything he has for us. So I'm going to do the full reading, John chapter 4, verse 1. 
Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back uh, once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming. When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking with you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out from the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? The food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and see the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and and, and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the Samaritan woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus is forced to travel from Judea to Galilee. Now, uh, the, the conflict is that they hear that Jesus' ministry is gaining momentum and the Pharisees are becoming fearful. So Jesus needs to move from the hub of Israel, Jerusalem, up to the region of Galilee, a, a remote region where uh, the heat won't be on him quite as much. And to get there, there's two ways to do it, as I understand. Either you go through Samaria, or you go the really long route across the sea north and then back across the sea again. And some people did that because the Samaritans were that hated in the time. We've got to do some background. We've got to understand what's happening in this story. A first century reader would be well aware of the animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. We need to do our homework and understand what Jesus is really doing in this moment. About 700 years prior, 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they, uh, ca- they captured the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel had at this point, uh, Time and time again, turned their backs on God. The kingdoms had split into a northern and southern kingdom of Israel. And in 722, the Assyrians came and they took the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. And what the Assyrians did when they conquered a land is they uh, carted off all of the uh, elite workers and people of society back to their homeland to enrich Assyria. And then they brought in people of their own to then live in that new land that they had just conquered. The Samaritans are those people that intermarried, the Jewish people that married the Assyrian people that came to the area and had children. And uh, if you know anything about Old Testament law, uh, you know that there were strict laws and expectations that the Jewish people be completely separate from the other nations in that respect. So they became incredibly despised. These are half-blood. They are the mutts of humanity. And I say that that should be vulgar to speak of humans like that, but I want you to hear that because that was the attitude towards these people. They're just disgusting people. We would rather travel many extra days to not even have to go through there. And there was violence and animosity going both directions at this point in history. Now, under Roman rule, now 700 years later as Jesus is walking, under Roman rule, who's now the world power, um, uh, Israel and Samaria are ruled as one nation, which you can imagine how that creates even more animosity towards those people that don't pay their taxes and do all these terrible things and whatever the gripes might be at the time. Jesus, however, chooses to pass straight through Samaria. And on his way through, he comes to a town and meets a woman at a well. Now, we have to notice the social implications of what's happening right here in this story. Jesus is stepping on the toes of so many social norms and religious norms and expectations in his nation. Uh, Those of gender, 
those of race, those of prejudice based on socioeconomics or on her lifestyle and her past. Jesus interacting in this moment, it's one of those really gritty, really strange and scary moments uh, for the apostles and should have been for Jesus. And yet, as we dig deeper, we will see his perspective is quite different than theirs in this moment. We find this woman, and uh, it comes out in the conversation that she'd had five husbands, right? And the man that she's with now uh, isn't her husband. And if you grew up in church, and if you went to Sunday school and you heard this, or if you've heard this preached, there's a good chance the spin went something like she's a harlot, right? She's this woman jumping around from man to man. This is a distinctly Western perspective on this story. Please understand the original hearers would not imagine that of her. A much more likely interpretation and reading of this text uh, is that she is a woman that had been left by and abandoned by man after man. A woman who couldn't put food on the table, a woman who's coming to the well at an odd time of day, living in shame from all the abuse and all the rejection that she has experienced in her life. I think that's a much more likely and accurate reading of what's happening in this text. She's been abandoned over and over. And after all, I mean, like, if you need any qualification for that, under Jewish law, a woman couldn't initiate divorce. This isn't someone who's walking out of relationship after relationship. This is someone who has been widowed or rejected over and over in her life, broken, fearful, alone at a well, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus engages in conversation. I wonder in today's society what the equivalent is. Can I rock our boat, maybe stir us up just a little bit, imagining what would it look like were this taking place in our culture around us. Now, there's many categories in our, in, uh, in our culture that exist that Israel wasn't asking questions of, right? It's a very different world. And so today, would Jesus encounter, would this experience be happening with a homeless person, like I discussed, just right in the town square where everyone could see? Would it be with a refugee family, Someone who's just been broken down by life, and here's Jesus turning his attention to their needs and inviting them to know hope and, ex- and experience and receive living water. Would Jesus be having this conversation with a single mother uh, who's working three jobs and kids are just running wild because she can hardly keep food on the table with her three jobs? Would Jesus be standing in the town square having this conversation with a gay man Right? There's so many segments of society that we have othered and said, whatever. And Jesus chooses the most gritty situation he can put himself in the middle of, and he engages with hope. I don't know who Jesus would be having this conversation with in our society. So I simply propose those as things to kind of spark our imagination and let us think about culture around us. I think he would probably be having these conversations with all of those people and many more that I didn't list. So the conversation then between Jesus and this woman at a well begins about water, naturally. They're at a well, so it begins with water. He asks her for a drink, culturally inappropriate, uh, and uh, she calls him on it, and he begins to shift the conversation. Well, if you knew who I was, you would, in fact, be asking me for water. 
Now, in John's gospel, he's going to bring up time and time again a, a number of themes that play out and develop through the gospel. One of them is water. You'll remember a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus' first sign was turning water into wine at a wedding. We, in fact, in this very text that I read today earlier, uh, we, we heard about water, though it wasn't mentioned in those terms. It was a mention of baptism. All of a sudden, tons and tons of people are coming to Jesus and the apostles to be baptized, water, baptism. And now John mentions, uh, and now we find Jesus speaking of water at a well, of eternal water, uh, something that would quench thirst for eternity. In this, John is continuing to reveal Jesus as the fulfillment of both the Old Testament prophecies and the themes. Think back to the Exodus story as God provides water out of a rock that his people might live. Jesus is building upon these themes. John, as he tells the story of Jesus and these interactions, is building upon these themes. Jesus is a source of living water that a person would never go thirsty again. The conversation begins to shift, though, as they finish up the conversation on water, uh, and he proves himself uh, to know all about this woman. She says, well, clearly you're a prophet, and we have this nagging question. In, in fact, we have this incredible problem. We Samaritans are told that the place we would have to worship God is in Jerusalem, but we're not welcome there. So we worship God on this mountain. She wants to know what's right and what's wrong in this situation. What do you think of when you think of worship? Many of us think of the songs that we sing at the beginning of a service on a Sunday. And I think that's good because that ought to be a time of worship for us. But worship is, in fact, a much broader conversation. And it's kind of what we see developing here in this conversation with a woman. Does it have to happen at a temple? Is it okay that it would happen on this mountain? Right, And the conversation begins to shift as Jesus says, understand, my followers will will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about going to that place or that place. It's not just about what happens for 30 minutes as we sing songs on a Sunday morning. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, worship is described in these terms. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's the way we engage with our families. It's the ways we engage with our coworkers. It's the choices we make and the choice to love or to hate, to stir up anger or to bring peace. This is worship in the eyes of our God. We see a similar thing playing out or conversation playing out as Jesus talks to this woman. Where do I have to go to worship? Is it okay that I worship on this mountain instead of at the temple? And Jesus says, understand this. Salvation comes from the Jews. In fact, I, Jesus, a Jewish man, am the Messiah. And this changes everything. Can you imagine? She's asking, where do I have to go to be near to God, to Jerusalem or a temple? And standing before her is Jesus, God in human form. Worship is and can be a daily rhythm, hour by hour, moment by moment. It'll happen as we read scripture. It'll happen as we pray, as we become more attuned to the fact that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us and inviting us to know the presence of God. Worship will happen in the kind gestures and loving words that we share with people around us. This is worship. 
that we would give our lives to the kingdom of God and live into God's good intent for this world. As they're finishing up their conversation on worship, um, the disciples showed back up. Notice they were shocked that he's talking to a woman. I don't think I've done a good enough job of preparing us for, but I'll move on anyways. How gritty this situation is, right? The disciples' reaction is nothing about this looks right and okay. They return and they say, Jesus, we have food. And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. And what is the food that he had? Doing the will of the Father. And what is he doing in that moment? He's talking with a Samaritan woman about new hope found in him. He says, this is what sustains me. This is what gives me life. This Samaritan woman and an invitation to her to know worship and new hope in life. Friends, if we caught just a glimpse of this, it would radically change the way we look at and engage in the world around us. Jesus says, my food is, my sustenance comes from sharing good good news with those on the margins, those that society has forgotten, those that are it's inappropriate to approach by societal and religious standards. Jesus says, this is what sustains me, doing God's will, which is engaging here and now in the life of this Samaritan woman. So, as we zoom out from the text and ask ourselves now 2,000 years later, as a church following Jesus, what might this look like in our lives? How does this play out, and how do we engage based on what John has revealed to us about the character of Jesus and the work of God? I want to go there in two phases. First, I feel a need to speak a word against the church. Now, understand, I want to couch that a little bit. I don't speak a word against the other churches in the Tri-Cities. Nor do I speak a word against looking back over history at how the church used to operate, but now we have figured out. I speak a word against the church that is me, that is you, that we are all a part of. Because so often we lose our focus in what God, on what God is doing in the world around us and get so caught up in our own stuff that we miss out on participating in the mission of God and, and experiencing what this food and water from heaven is like as we actually engage in the real and gritty things of this world with a message of hope and good news. So a word against the church. Too often, we, the church, choose the comfortable and, frankly, lazy posture of assuming that God's work and Christianity looks like us. Too often, the church has been comfortable using Scripture to proof text, that is, using Scripture as a weapon to uphold our preconceived preferences and social norms. We use Scripture to uphold what we think or what we want society to look like. And this enables us to other groups of people as though they're unredeemable. That's my word against the church. That's my word against me and the way I have operated in this world. 
In this little church, when we began looking at stories like Jesus engaging with a Samaritan woman, or Jesus as a prostitute washes his feet in a, in a, in a Pharisee's house, right? Looking at all these gritty and real things. We dreamed of something that looked more like the ministry and life of Jesus in church. And so we imagined, well, how's Jesus operating in his ministry? Uh, we imagined a place of belonging first. Wherever you're at in your faith journey, wherever you're at in your walk of life, this is a place in which you can belong, in which we can explore Jesus together. Of course, that next step is we're Jesus followers, and we hope that you put your faith in him as we have, and we experience radical transformation as we become the people we were made to be, as we experience things as gritty and as real as what Jesus is doing in this story that John wrote for us. So not only do I have a word against the church and against myself and the way we've operated, I also want to share out of this text in John uh, a vision for what could be, a hope for the church. May we instead engage in this world in the ways that Jesus did. May we be a people of radical invitation and inclusion a people that see the world through God's eyes, see the hurt, and invite his loving embrace. And in so doing, may we partner with God in his good work as we see the Spirit at work in the neighborhoods around us, in the community around us, in this world. May we lean in to partnering with what God is doing in this community. And may we be astonished by the harvest that God is reaping, by what he is accomplishing in and through us. So, I'm going to close today in a prayer, and it's a prayer written in 1577 by Sir Francis Drake. Ready? Pray with me. Disturb us, Lord when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity, and in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Amen. Disturb us, Lord. I'm quite confident the text and the conversation today did that for some of us. Um, and I hope that's okay. Uh, but I do want to invite us to continued conversation. Um, in fact, today, uh, instead of going out and greeting, there'll be lots of people doing that. I'm going to go sit down at a table in the sunroom. And if anyone has, 
if this has stirred something in you, um, and or if it's frustrated you in some way, I just want you to know you're invited. We would love to have a roundtable discussion in there. Uh, if anyone would like to follow up on any of these themes today, you're welcome to. Also, if you'd like to send an email, you're welcome to do that. We want to continue the conversation together. As I zoom out of the text and I realize I've concluded a heavy text and a heavy lesson, by the way, one of my absolute favorite stories in all of Scripture, I want to say this. I recognize in this above all else, Jesus who is able to see people and to love them right where they're at. If nothing else today, I hope we're convicted by that. We're invited to see people and to love them right where they're at.